This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. After wearing his White Lives Matter shirt with Republican Party propagandist Candace Owens at a Paris fashion event where he debuted the ninth season of his clothing line, which is great, by the way, we'll talk about that in a moment, Kanye West decided to then go to Twitter to declare war on Jewish people. Yeah. So how we got from White Lives Matter to Death Con 3 against Jewish people is a little bit of a complicated story, but it seemingly began when Puff responded to Kanye West's use of White Lives Matter via Instagram. And what he said was, I think, really thoughtful. Take a look. Um, I've always been there and I will always support my brother Kanye as a free thinker. But the White Lives Matter t-shirt, I don't rock with it. You know what I'm saying? I'm not with it and with the press and with fashion is doing thinking it's a joke. But right now, all America has planned for us is poverty, incarceration, and death. So before I could get to any other lives matter, which all lives matter, you know what I'm saying? That black lives matter, don't play with it. If you can't, don't, don't wear the shirt, don't buy the shirt, don't play with the shirt. It's not a joke. Now, Kanye West did not like what Diddy had to say there. So Kanye West then decided to share his text exchanges between him and Diddy, where Diddy is presumably trying to get Kanye West to meet up with him to talk about their disagreement over White Lives Matter rather than doing this over social media. And Kanye West then responded by saying, quote, I'm going to use you as an example to show the Jewish people that told you to call me that no one can threaten or influence me. So the explicit implication is that Puff isn't just responding to Kanye West because he disagrees as a black man with the slogan White Lives Matter, but he's being controlled by Jewish people and they told him to say that and specifically to reach out to Kanye West. That's what Kanye West is saying. And he shared that text message thinking that he'd be able to cultivate sympathy after being brazenly anti-Semitic. He wasn't done though because he then took the Twitter to write this in a now deleted tweet after Twitter got rid of it. I'm a bit sleepy tonight, but when I wake up, I'm going to death con three on Jewish people in all caps. And he added, the funny thing is, I actually can't be anti-Semitic because black people are actually Jew. Also, you guys have toyed with me and tried to blackball anyone whoever opposes your agenda. The grammar here makes this almost unreadable. He later added, who do you think created cancel culture? Oh, that's an easy one. Republicans. So that way they can claim that anyone who criticizes them over racism or homophobia or transphobia, well, they're just getting canceled. It's part of the culture war. It was PC correctness and all this. Now it's cancel culture. It is completely the creation of the Republican propaganda apparatus. But you can see what Kanye West is doing here because he's getting criticism because people oftentimes condemn him. Reasonable people condemn him 
Well, it's all because of Jewish people. Now, I genuinely don't know what he means by DEFCON 3. I don't know if he means DEFCON 3. I don't know if he's creating his own word to declare war against Jewish people. Either way, what he's saying here is terrible. It's deeply, deeply anti-Semitic. And I want to share what Charlemagne the God said in response on The Breakfast Club to Kanye West because he was short but concise, but he eviscerated Kanye West. Yeah, how do you as a black man wake up and choose white supremacy? Like Kanye West woke up and just chose to be a Nazi one day. Like I wouldn't be surprised if he comes out and tells you how much he loves Hitler. Like in the span of a week, you use your energy to spew anti-black slogans and anti-Semitic rhetoric. Like you might as well call him KK Kanye at this point. I think that Charlemagne here is absolutely spot on. Kanye West is someone who tries to go out of his way to be intentionally provocative. He's worn the Confederate flag before. So he knows that by wearing a White Lives Matter shirt, you know, he is going to get a reaction from that. But the reaction, according to him, is not authentic. It's a reaction that is the product of Jewish people trying to control Kanye West. So because people denounced Kanye West's use of White Lives Matter on a t-shirt, well, that's not just people reacting to his stupidity. It's Jewish people trying to rein in Kanye West. That's the conspiracy theory. Now, other individuals like Candace Owens, they tried to defend Kanye West, believe it or not. Now, it's not the best defense ever because how could you defend what he tweeted? But nonetheless, it's a defense and take a look at what she had to say in response. So you have like reasonable, honest people like Charlemagne responding authentically, but then you have Candace Owens claiming that that type of response is not authentic. Let's watch. If you are an honest person, you did not think this tweet was anti-Semitic. You did not think that he wrote this tweet because he hates or wants to genocide Jewish people. This does not represent the beginning of the Holocaust. That's if you're an honest person, you'll meet that. You, you will admit that, right? If you're an honest person, when you read this tweet, you had no idea what the hell he was talking about. I had, I had no idea when I read this tweet what the hell he was talking about. This tweet inspired questions, not answers. First and foremost, what is DEFCON 3? Did he mean DEFCON 3? which would be a military defense position, not an offense for those of you that are offended, a military defense position. Is he tweeting this because he's reading the Newsweek headline, calling him an anti-Semitic? Is he angry because he can't believe that he's not free to talk about people in his life who happen to be Jewish, right, without being accused of anti-Semitism? Is he saying, I'm not going to shut up and I'm going to keep tweeting and I'm going to keep calling these people out, referring to his friends that he feels slighted by? Is he talking about Jared Kushner and Josh Kushner? If you're a liar, you'll say, I know I was scared, Candace. I actually thought that Kanye West was going to launch a military strike in Israel because that's the reaction. Like when I woke up and I looked at the headlines, the reaction was like Kanye West had gotten together a military strike and it was going to go forward in the morning time in Israel. That was, that was the reaction that was met with this tweet. Now, once again, I want to make this very clear. This is not a defensive tweet. This is an open question, which never seems to happen anymore. It's like you cannot even say the word Jewish without people getting upset in the same way that you're not allowed to say black anymore. His tweet was incoherent, yes. But Candace, he literally in that tweet accused Jewish people of trying to blackball anyone who opposes their agenda. And it's not just that tweet that makes his recent behavior anti-Semitic. It's him sharing a tweet or sharing a text between him and Puff 
saying that Puff is being controlled by Jewish people. You understand, right? Like, I get that Kanye West is not the brightest bulb, but to try to defend him by using the dumb defense, oh, I don't know what the hell he means, that's still not a, not a defense. Being stupid is not a defense for bad behavior. And just for, you know, clarity's sake here, Kanye West is not stupid because he has mental health issues. I think that one might reasonably try to defend him because he suffers from bipolar disorder. And yes, that is a serious condition. I have a family member who suffers from bipolar disorder. I know people who have bipolar disorder. They don't get to use their disorder as an excuse to say deeply, deeply disgusting and anti-Semitic things. And aside from being bipolar, that doesn't give Kanye West an excuse to be nasty and say terrible things and also go after his wife. There are millions and millions of Americans with bipolar disorder who have to live normal lives, work a job, but because Kanye West, I think, is rich, people kind of extend this uh, sympathy to him. At least their fan, his fans extend this level of sympathy to him that just normal working class bipolar people don't get, right? So anything that they do, it's, you know, they get blamed for their bipolar. But when it comes to Kanye West, it's, oh, my God, he has bipolar. We should feel sympathy for him. No. And having bipolar is not an excuse for you just being an unintelligent person. And I think he is deeply unserious and deeply unintelligent. Right. So Kanye West, like he doesn't he isn't owed this extra level of sympathy because we're trying to not be ableist. No. He can have bipolar and we can feel sad that he has bipolar, but acknowledge that that is something that he doesn't get to use because normal bipolar people don't get to use that as well. But this individual is saying and doing terrible things and you still have his sims like Candace Owens, like members of his fan base defend him. And look, I used to be a giant fan of Kanye West, particularly his first stuff, like five albums. I loved him. He was my favorite artist of all time, but he's gone so far to this deranged territory that I don't even think I can enjoy his new art. I can enjoy his older art because the way that I rationalize it in my head is that that was a different kind of Kanye. He was reasonable back then before he tried to sell out to the right and grift with them. But I mean, nowadays I have no interest in his music because he's in a weird space, weird divorced dad energy time of his life where it's just toxic and, and gross. But this man thinks so highly of himself that he thinks he is a genius. And sure, he's talented when it comes to music, but he thinks a little bit too high of himself. So I want to get to the Paris Fashion Week uh, clothing line that he debuted because that right there should disprove this notion that Kanye West is a genius. So let's look at the designs that he debuted at the same fashion show where he wore this White Lives Matter shirt. You have an oversized poncho here that um, looks like shit and it's probably very, very expensive. I don't know who would want to wear this. You also have a uh, dress thing that kind of looks like a garbage bag. I mean, if you're going to cut somebody's hair, maybe you'd cut a hole out of a garbage bag and you put this over them to kind of capture the hair so it won't won't get on their clothes that's what that looks like to me you've also got a spaghetti strap tank top for men <laughs> very innovative and revolutionary i don't know how he came up with this damn you've got a puffy coat that looks like it was chewed up although it would be i think pretty pragmatic if you're trying to sneak snacks into a movie theater so that's one use for it now my absolute favorite of all time is what appears to be a spandex bodysuit thing that is modeled after a cat i guess and you can't really see that in this dark picture but this is a more lighter image 
I guess it's a cat suit of sorts. I, I don't really know what to make of this. Imagine buying that for like $500 because you know he charges an arm and a leg for that and practically trying to get through your day wearing that where it's like, okay, I've got to pee. Can you give me like 15 minutes so I can take off my entire spandex suit and then put it back on? Who would wear that? Who would, who would buy that? This is proof that uh, rich people have too much money if they are indeed purchasing things like this, but I don't know who would buy that, and I don't know who would design this. Somebody who is deeply unserious and not very creative when it comes to fashion would do something like that. But, you know, uh, Kanye West, he thinks the world of himself. In his uh, Tucker Carlson interview, look at who he compared himself to. I'm not one of the people that go up and say, hey, I want to stop anybody from making money. The people that make money and the powers that be, I am your true Nikolai Tesla. And I'm not even a scientist. Bro, you make cat spandex suits. Stop, okay? Look, you can be a dumbass, as Kanye West is, and still have talent with regard to specific things. You can have talent when it comes to music, but that doesn't mean that you're a genius in every realm. Just because you're good at Making music doesn't mean you're going to be an expert at baking or fashion. And he needs to stay in his lane and just make music when it comes to anything else. Political commentary, his commentary on Jewish people. It's not very good. In fact, it's deeply, deeply problematic. So, I mean, Kanye West, the point that I'm making and talking about all of this is that this man is a clown. He is deeply unserious, deeply unintelligent. And anyone who tries to take him seriously at this point is also a clown. That includes people like Candace Owens, who tried to do a soft defense for Kanye West because, oh, you know, he's not being anti-Semitic. You're not an honest person if you think he's being anti-Semitic. You're an honest person if you admit that what he's saying doesn't make sense. Well, maybe he should be more clear. Maybe he should stay off of social media if the one thing that he returns to Twitter to do is spout off anti-Semitic, hateful bullshit. Because understand, the last time that he tweeted was in 2020. But... He broke his non-Twitter streak to talk about going to DEFCON 3 against Jewish people. Yeah, Kanye West is absolute trash, and anyone who tries to defend him at this point is not to be taken seriously. But I love to see the right eat crow, because after they've been defending everything that Kanye West has been doing, because he's seemingly on their side, on their team, well, now all of a sudden, they're forced to backpedal because... How can you defend something so brazenly anti-Semitic? You can't. And so you see Fox News backpedaling now saying, mm, this is a really ugly tweet. And it's just, you know, it's a reason why you don't defend people who are very clearly not serious, not bright, and just trying to get a reaction from others. Red pill. You know, you people make me laugh. Okay, so as if you think so is that I would even entertain the idea of joining up with a social club that made Donald Trump its president, this twice divorced casino owner. Right wing grifter Dave Rubin tried to red pill Bill Maher on a recent episode of his Club Random podcast, but as you saw, it didn't go too well. Even for someone like Bill Maher, who is inherently reactionary, who has indeed shifted to the right, he still is not taking the bait. And I think that the reason why Bill Maher isn't going so far as to embrace Donald Trump is because even if he has these reactionary tendencies and always had, to be clear, he isn't a grifter. 
right? Bill Maher has millions and millions of dollars, so he doesn't have to rely on the Trump movement specifically for money or to maintain a grift of any sort. He could just kind of express his reactionary ideals and attack the left and have that be the end of it. But with someone like Dave Rubin, he relies on the Trump movement for views and clicks. So he has to use Trump in order to grift, even if he might sometimes throw anti-Trump critics a bone here and there. But that's the difference between these two individuals. Now, I want to play the extended clip that led to that moment where Bill Maher had to kind of explain to Dave Rubin why there's no chance that he's going to join the Trump movement. But you are not ready for how cringeworthy this segment is. Take a look. This is a very cool moment for me. Yeah, it's not going to happen. I know. <laughs> Okay, I don't care. <laughs> All I right, fine. I don't care how. Come on, a little anal, Bill. Bill, come on. The shirt. It's the shirt. Republican, you make the come anal sex. I'll fully red pill you. That's what we call it. <laughs> when you're splayed out over the bed. That's what we call it, Mar. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. Because everyone's like, Bill Mar's almost there. What does he need to finally get over the hump? I know what it is, Bill. Oh, I Club know what random. it is, too, and it's not that. First of all, you got to break up with your boyfriend, Donald Trump. Okay, so forget Trump. I'm, uh, we don't have to, we don't even have to do politics if you don't want. But no, uh, but, but I'm just Trump. saying you. All right, so you DeSantis. brought it up. Yeah, you brought it up. Fair enough. You brought it up. Yeah. And so, I'm telling you. All right, so let's. Okay, that's so, I red pill. You know, you people make me laugh. Okay, so as if you think so, is DeSantis, that I would even entertain the idea of joining up with a social club that made Donald Trump its president. That was painful to watch, especially when Dave Rubin started to joke. Dave Rubin, comedian, by the way, started to joke about red-pilling Bill Maher by dicking him. Now, listen, Dave Rubin, to be fair, was put in an awkward position because Bill Maher was joking, also a comedian, about Dave Rubin wanting to get with him, wanting to fuck him or something like that. And as a gay man myself, I understand how awkward that is, but rather than going along with it, you have to stand up for yourself, Dave Rubin, but he instead he kind of embraced the meme and was like, oh, well, uh, maybe a little bit of anal. When he said that, it was so cringeworthy that my skin crawled. I just, I can't, I can't handle Dave Rubin. Listen, I was put in a similar situation when I was really young. I think I was like 23, 24. And I was out bowling and a co-worker had shown up with her husband and he knew that I was gay. So when he was about to bowl, he was like, ready, he stops right before he rolls the ball and he turns around and looks at me and says, hey, you're not checking out my ass, are you? And his wife just like burst out into laughter, was cackling. And that pissed me off because, um, how do I put this politely? This was somebody who was old and fat. It was a middle-aged man, not attractive. I was also in a committed relationship, so why would you think that? Um, and I just said, don't flatter yourself. It wasn't a lot, but I stood up for myself. I didn't say, oh, <laughs> that's how us gay people are. We're just always looking at every straight man's ass. It's a dumb joke for a comedian like Bill Maher to make because are you looking at every single woman? Are you just attracted to every single woman on the planet because you're straight? Of course not. That's that's preposterous. Um, so it, it's stupid to make this joke. It's a dumb joke if you're a comedian. But Dave Rubin, he never stands up for himself. We've seen time and again how the right will rip him to shreds. They'll critique his whole family, claim that he should be executed for having children with his husband, and he never stands up for himself. He only continues to grift and blames the left. So not surprising his response there. Still deeply, deeply cringeworthy to hear him say, 
What about a little bit of anal, Bill Maher? It just, oh my God, as a gay man, I, I cannot handle it. Like, he's too much. His kids are going to be so embarrassed by him when they grow up. He just, he can't not embarrass himself. This is as bad as when he was describing the process of how babies are made to his audience when he announced that him and his husband were going to have kids and they were talking about sperm and he was like talking about it. Oh, well, there's a lot of sperm. It's just, it's too much. Dave doesn't know how to rein it in. He's so cringeworthy. But anyways, here's more of their conversation, uh, conversation about Donald Trump. This clip is really embarrassing from Dave Rubin's standpoint because Bill Maher is going to basically tell him that what he's saying is dumb. Take a look. That's what people love about him. He's yeah. authentic yeah. in that it, it's so Who funny. Who would you say is more authentic, him or Joe Biden? Him. Because Who's he's, more authentic, him or Elizabeth Warren? But authentic doesn't mean good. No, if you're I, authentically I a crazy person, but if, in a he's world, authentically a fucking moron and a crazy person. But Bill, yes, in a, he in is a authentic. World, in a world of liars, a little authenticity goes a long way. So that's that might ridiculous. be that's a, that, that's, that's such a dumb thing. You know what? Do you it's it's, it's kind of like when people say like, well, honesty is the most important thing in a relationship. No, it's not. No. Honesty's not that. Honesty will, will saved no relationships. Would you say we're in a fog of bullshit right now? Everything uh, with this. The fact that he's authentic is not the most important thing. It's a nice no, thing. No, I didn't say it was the most important thing. Yeah, I kind of think you did. No, it's something though. It's something. It's something. No, but it, it doesn't matter if the authentic, authenticity is in the service of okay. being a fucking moron. But it was pretty good when he was president. What? What was pretty good? Well. We didn't, we weren't in a recession. The border was a little bit better. We didn't have a crazy war in Ukraine. Like there were things, come on, you have to admit, oh. like, I get it, I get it. He also went after you personally. So I say it on my it's show all the nothing time. nothing to do with that. No, no, but- That but, was only No, 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 but I will, I will grant you that for sure. Right. Like he and went- That at, doesn't bother me. I grant it with Megan also, cause he went after Megan. Remember the ble yeah, bleeding course, or whatever? So course. it's like, he went after you personally. If the president of the United States had ever said, Dave Rubin, whatever he said about you, he hasn't conceded the election. The last I'm, I have no defense of that. Completely no defense of that. Then we're, what are we talking about? Then we then the discussion is over. I mean, because after that means nothing. If you can't concede the election, the jewel in our crown of America. Yes, is, is that, that we have peaceful other, transfer. So many it. other countries had problems with the peaceful transfer. That's like the one that really trips everybody up. Yeah. And it didn't trip us up until him. Ouch, that was brutal. Um, it was brutal because Bill Maher told Dave Rubin to his face that that point was dumb. But also Dave Rubin, if you notice, backed down from every single point he was trying to make. Oh, you see, you know, things were better under Trump. And then he backed off of that immediately. Very convincing, Dave Rubin. And the reason why he's not convincing, by the way, is because he doesn't actually believe this. I don't think that Dave Rubin believes anything that he says. I think that he just says these things to appease his audience. He's probably one of the most craven grifters in America, with the exception of maybe Jackson Hinkle. But I mean, Dave Rubin is certainly top two for sure in terms of just shameless grifters. But um yeah, and then when Bill Maher got to the point about how Trump hasn't conceded the election, Dave Rubin also couldn't defend that. So if you honestly are going to try to red pill Bill Maher, do you not prepare better arguments because you had nothing? And every single point that you brought up, Bill Maher refuted that. And I hate to say this, but I agreed with Bill Maher here. Authenticity doesn't just automatically make Trump good. It's one attribute that I think can be beneficial for politicians. And I think that it does benefit Donald Trump. But I would take somebody who's disingenuous and inauthentic over an extremist psychopath like Donald Trump. So authenticity isn't inherently good. And that's the point that Bill Maher was trying to make. But yet that was the only, I guess, positive that 
Dave Rubin had in his efforts to red pill Bill Maher. So that's what he kind of kept sticking to, and it didn't work. Now, one more moment that I've got to play that was really embarrassing, probably the most embarrassing moment throughout this podcast for Dave Rubin was when he kept trying to plug his book. Now, this platform is going to be used by Dave Rubin to perpetuate his grift, to elevate his grift. So naturally, he tried to plug his book multiple times to the point where Bill Maher, I kid you not, had to comment on it and actually clown on him for repeatedly plugging his book nonstop. Take a look. The, the book that I'll give you at the end there, um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a defense of classical liberalism. I think you'd read the book and you would go, you know, maybe a little bit, I'm, I'm more on the like, I don't really want any government programs anymore. So I definitely have more of that stuff now, maybe than you do. Bill, I just finished uh, my book tour where I did I did stand up, you know, okay, all over the country. You mentioned this fucking book again. Great, I'm gonna throw book, this fucking bottle. I signed bottle. it for you, you're gonna I'm freaking gonna love it, man. You're gonna love it. Bottle I don't even think I said the name of the book. It wasn't a heavy promotion that I was doing here. But anyway, it's a great book. You're gonna really love it. I think you're in it. Um, I... And Listen, Dave, I don't think that you realize this, but if you wrote a book that wasn't a shameless cash grab, if you actually had something interesting or meaningful to say, people would ask you about the book. But the reason why people aren't asking you about this book is because you have nothing of value to say. You wrote a book because you want to sell it, because you want money. Like if I were to bring on Stephanie Kelton, for example, I'd ask her about her book because she wrote something that's very interesting. She is an expert on economics and modern monetary theory. I would ask Dr. Abdul El Sayed about Medicare for All, his Medicare for All book in particular, because not only is he a big advocate of Medicare for All, but he makes a very persuasive argument about Medicare for All in his book. In Dave Rubin's book, he doesn't say anything. Like, you have nothing of value to say, so why would we ask you about that book? You're just trying to make money off of it and grift Bill Maher's audience, and he was on to that, which is why he called you out. So that's basically all that I have. There's more clips floating around on the internet if you want to find them. The whole podcast, I'll link to it, to it down below. It's two hours long, so I don't know if you're going to be able to tolerate that much of Dave Rubin and Bill Maher, but it's there if you want to watch it. Either way, this was not a good look for Dave Rubin, and he really should stick to his own podcast where he can kind of, um, I don't know, control the narrative and the guests. Because when you speak to somebody else and when you try to actually make a persuasive argument to them, you really expose how shallow and vapid you are as an individual. And again, it just kind of exposes how you're just a grifter. You have no substance. You're just a grifter, period, full stop. Marjorie, thank you for all you do. So uh, we're all uh, laid over the uh, DOP decision and uh, um, abortion being turned back to the states and no funded constitutional right to abortion. But just as uh, toxic to the culture was the Obergefell decision that claimed uh, marriage could be between someone other than one man and one woman. Uh, what are our chances of keeping that in the long term? I'm sorry, what are you saying? What are our chances of getting that one overturned? Obergefell. Uh, Clarence Thomas yeah. hinted that that might be up next, or at least the court might decision. I think we have a better chance closet on the Supreme Court right now, like we had with the Dots case, and we saw Roe versus Wade get overturned. I, see, I think we have a better chance there with the, the balance uh, on the Supreme Court as it stands right now than we do in Congress. Now, we know that the Bible tells us that marriage is a covenant uh, uh, between man and woman. That's what marriage is. 
You just watched Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene admit that they have a better chance with the current makeup of the Supreme Court of gay marriage being overturned. Now, this is not necessarily something that I think most Republicans want her to admit because they've been trying to hide the ball when it comes to the issue of marriage equality. For example, Ron Johnson cited the unlikelihood that the Supreme Court is going to overturn Obergefell v. Hodges as his justification to not support the Senate's marriage equality codification bill. On top of that, you have other Republicans claiming that it's definitely not going to happen and that they're not coming for marriage equality. But that's a lie, and we all know it's a lie, and Marjorie Taylor Greene here is kind of giving up the game and saying, yeah, actually, I think that there is a reason to kind of be optimistic, if you're a bigot, that this Supreme Court is going to go after marriage equality. And she's correct about that. It's absurd to think that they won't, considering that in the Dobbs decision, Clarence Thomas literally name-dropped Obergefell v. Hodges, the decision that legalized marriage equality in this country, saying we should revisit that now that the makeup has changed. Now, whether or not they actually would overturn it, I think that it is likely, not necessarily a foregone conclusion, but it's something that a lot of evangelicals want. And since evangelicals want it, and since this is a very loyal voting demographic for the Republican Party, they, by extension, should want it as well. Now, if you'll notice, Marjorie Taylor Greene, she wasn't as firebrand in her answer there. She did say, yeah, you know, God says, or the Bible says, that marriage is a covenant between men and women woman, but she didn't go on one of her long rants as she usually does. Why is that? Because I think that she knows that this is a losing issue for Republicans. So on one hand, you want Republicans to let their freak flag fly in a way, come out against popular things before an election, because marriage equality now sits at 71% nationally, and that includes 55% of Republicans who say they support same-sex marriage. So strategically, you want her to continue to talk when it comes to this issue. But morally, this is still bad when you're thinking outside of the, you know, uh, the election season because this shifts the Overton window. We want these bigots to feel as if it is socially unacceptable for them to talk about their bigotry. But the fact that they are openly talking about their desire to see marriage equality be overturned says that we've got a long way to go in terms of, you know, support for LGBTQ issues, even if 71% support for this issue is a lot. Like, we need to get that to as close as possible to 100%, even though 100% is impossible. As close as we can be to 100% is what we as a society should be fighting for. Now, I've just got a remark at the guy who even asked this question to her in the first place. By the way, this was at a fundraising event. Mind your own business. This is an individual who doesn't like gay marriage, uh, presumably because he is a bigot. Maybe he knows people who are gay who, and he doesn't like them. I don't know. There are people with lifestyles in this country who I disagree with, lifestyles that I don't understand. But if they are not bothering me, then who cares? Mind your own business. This is one thing that bigots need to learn. Mind your own business. If it doesn't affect you, then move on with your life. Same thing with Marjorie Taylor Greene. She doesn't necessarily seem as loud when it comes to the issue of marriage equality, but on the trans issue, she is as loud as she can possibly be in her venom and vitriol towards trans people. She targets them regularly and attacks them. And I've just got to say, move on. Like, you don't want to be trans? Great, move on. It doesn't affect you. Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene, in a different video, she got very, very explicit in 
her bigotry, and this time racist bigotry, in espousing the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory. Take a look. Yeah. Joe Biden's five million illegal aliens are on the verge of replacing you, replacing your jobs and replacing your kids in school and coming from all over the world. They're also replacing your culture. And that's not great for America. She is saying the quiet part loud over and over and over again. And Marjorie Taylor Greene for the Republican Party, she's this double-edged sword because on one hand, she absolutely is able to rile up the GOP's bigoted base. But on another hand, she's so extremist. She's such a loud, far-right individual with a lot of attention that this turns off a lot of independents, people who are right-leaning, but they get turned off by this type of extremist, racist rhetoric. Now, this replacement theory, this is something that's existed for quite some time. It becomes a problem when it gets popularized and mainstreamed by figures like Tucker Carlson, who has mentioned it hundreds of times on his program, and politicians like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Because just citing the theory in and of itself, that is dangerous because we don't want this theory that is false to get popularized. But when powerful people adopt this theory, it gets dark for society. As the Southern Poverty Law Center explains, the Great Replacement can also be seen as a variation or elaboration on false narratives of white extinction that have circulated since the 19th century in Europe and in white majority countries subject to European colonization and settlement. In 1892, British-Australian author Charles Pearson warned that one day soon, white people would wake up to find ourselves elbowed and hustled and perhaps even thrust aside by peoples whom we look down upon. His book, National Life and Character, launched a genre that included even more apocalyptic visions of white extinction from American authors, including the racist and anti-Semitic New York lawyer, Madison Grant. Grant's own scientific racist 1916 book, The Passing of the Great Race, warned of the decline and extinction of America's Nordic racial stock. Scientific racism is the discredited pseudoscientific belief that scientific evidence exists to support racism and racially biased state policy. Grant did not write from the fringes. His book influenced the widespread adoption of eugenic policies, restrictions on non-white immigration, and anti-miscegenation laws in the U.S. in the interwar period. Grant's book had an influence far beyond North America in devising their own racist political order. Germany's Nazi regime and Hitler himself drew on narratives of white extinction and on American policies influenced by Grant and like-minded authors. So there are historical examples that tell us what happens when society adopts this white extinction slash great replacement conspiracy theory. When powerful people adopt this narrative, it leads to policies of racial antagonism, exclusion, segregation, and genocide. But yet we have individuals like Marjorie Taylor Greene proudly saying it and using the word replacement specifically multiple times to rile up the GOP's base. So individuals like her, they are deeply, deeply troubling. As much as she, I think, negatively affects the Republican Party and their image with independence, she's still a net negative for society because of all of the ways that she is corrupting the masses. And it's not just her, Fox News is also an issue, but she's using her platform as a politician, her influence as a policymaker to get people to think that they're actually being replaced. And the fear of being replaced going extinct leads to people to take up violence against minority communities. So Marjorie Taylor Greene, time and again, 
is telling us who she is and who the Republican Party is. They are enthusiastic about her. They like her. So we should believe them when they tell you who they are. This is somebody who is deeply, deeply bigoted. She wants gay marriages to be overturned. She believes in the great replacement theory. So if the GOP's base continues to elect people like this, then believe that this isn't just some coincidence. This isn't the product of voters just being uninformed. Time and again, she has told us who she is. And if they continue to vote for her after this, it's not just because they're uninformed. It's because they agree with her. They're racist too. And as a society, we have to figure out ways that we can deprogram large portions of the population, the GOP's base, from this racism and this bigotry. I got to say, I was surprised to see so many socialists in the Republican caucus. <laughs> When it comes to the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that President Biden signed into law, I've been pretty open on this channel about my criticism of that legislation. It's bipartisan infrastructure, so I don't like it because it is essentially a corporate giveaway. That's not to say that there aren't good provisions within that legislation, but anytime you get to a bipartisan consensus, most of the time, it's going to be because the donors within both parties are instructing their little puppets to support that. So that's why you saw a lot of Republicans support the bipartisan infrastructure deal, which was influenced by individuals like Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, who are exclusively corporate tools. Now, there are a lot of Republicans who also didn't like this bill, albeit for very different reasons uh, than me. How I wouldn't criticize this bill is uh, I wouldn't call it socialism because it's the opposite of socialism, but a lot of Republicans denounced this as socialism. But yet, even after denouncing this bill as socialism, what are they doing? Well, of course, they are writing to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg and asking him for funding from this bill that they voted against and also called socialism. And Biden is actually calling them out for their hypocrisy. But before we get to that video, I want to share CNN's report on this. They write, last November, GOP Representative Tom Emmer of Minnesota released a statement slamming the passage of the freshly approved infrastructure law he referred to as President Biden's multi-trillion dollar socialist wish list. Then, in June, Emmer, the House Republican campaign chairman leading attacks on Democrats for supporting the law, quietly submitted a wish of his own. Arizona Representative Paul Gozar, a leading Biden critic who explained his vote against what he called a phony infrastructure bill by issuing a statement that, quote, this bill only serves to advance the America last socialist agenda while completely lacking fiscal responsibility, wrote three separate letters between March and July advocating for projects in his district. They'd enhance quality of life, Gozar wrote. They'd ease congestion and boost the economy. They'd alleviate bottlenecks and improve rural living conditions. Kentucky Representative Andy Barr called the bill a big government socialist agenda. He later wrote three letters of his own on behalf of three different projects, also citing their importance for safety and job growth. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul said he voted against the bill because it typified wasteful spending, which would deepen the national debt. Paul wrote 10 different letters petitioning for more of that money coming into Kentucky. Now, listen, if they're going to criticize this bill, I don't have a problem with that. It's the way that they criticize this bill that especially makes them hypocrites. They called it socialism. It proves, one, that they don't know what socialism even is. But two, it proves that they don't mind 
socialism if it benefits them. That's the takeaway here. They're hypocrites. But this isn't socialism in this instance. There are instances where you can point to conservatives reaping the rewards of big governments after denouncing big government. I think that PPP loans is a fantastic example. Individuals like Mark Wayne Mullen, Matt Gates, they took PPP loans, Marjorie Taylor Greene as well, and these are the individuals who claim that government shouldn't be big unless it's you know big enough to fit inside of your bedroom or your uterus. But at the same time, they take handouts from the government, but yet they want to restrict welfare programs. They denounce Joe Biden for canceling student debt, but yet they had their PPP loans forgiven. So they are hypocrites of the highest order, and Democrats cannot keep letting them get away with this. Their hypocrisy needs to be called out. They need to be put on blast. And thankfully, Joe Biden decided to activate Dark Brandon, and he cited this exact report, and he put some of these Republicans by name on blast. And this is the exact strategy that Democrats should be incorporating ahead of November. Let's watch. I saw there's a report. You guys can, as they say, as my grandkids say, Google it. But the report that came out, CNN, it says Republicans call Biden infrastructure program socialism. And then they ask for the money. And it goes through all of Republicans, who, the most conservative Republicans, who call it socialism and how they're asking for it. A guy named Paul Gosser, he's written three separate letters to the administration asking for projects in his district. He says it enhanced the quality of life, that ease congestion, boosts the economy. Voted against it says it's all socialism. Go down the list. Kentucky Representative Andy Barr, the biggest socialist agenda. Three different projects he wants, studying the importance of the safety and growth of his district. Rand Paul, I go down the list, look it up. Socialism. I didn't know there were that many socialist Republicans. Think about it. I'm, I'm serious. Let's get serious about taking care of ordinary people, regular people like I grew up. Folks, look, you can't make this stuff up. You got to say, and I got to say, I was surprised to see so many socialists in the Republican caucus. <laughs> that right there was good politics. For so long, Democrats have been letting Republicans get away with overt hypocrisy, and they have to put a stop to that right now. I'm glad that they are seemingly moving past this era of when they go low, we go high, with the exception of progressives because they're ruthless against progressives. But I'm glad that they're moving past this era because they have let Republicans set the agenda, set the narrative for years now. And I understand why they basically do that. It's essentially a losing battle because the Republican propaganda apparatus is incredibly loud and powerful. So what's the point of even trying to push back? Well, when you push back, actually, when you use your bully pulpit as president, that's very influential. And because Biden made that remark, he called out these socialist Republicans, facetiously so. Now media are reporting on Biden's remarks as president. And now they look very foolish. And some of these Republicans are in tight races. So to let their Democratic opponent use this attack, showcase their hypocrisy, it's brilliant. Now, there's a complete list that I'll link to within that CNN article. But I just want to real quick go over some of these names here. So when it comes to the Senate, individuals who condemned it as socialist who also wrote letters to Pete Buttigieg begging for money from daddy government. Uh, that includes Mike Rounds, John Thune, Joni Ernst, Cindy Hyde-Smith, Richard Shelby, Pat Toomey, Jim Inhofe. All of these senators 
claimed that this was bad, voted against it, and now they are trying to get this money so they can then brag to their constituents about money that they secured for them when they had no part in securing that funding. It's hilarious. Also in the House of Representatives, Marionette Miller-Meeks, Vicki Hartzler, Larry Buxton, Jerry Carl, Jim Comer, John Rutherford, Mark Modi, John Joyce, uh, Nancy Mace, Kathy McMorris, Rogers, Michelle Fishback, uh, Trent Kelly, Randy Feenstra. Most of these people you probably don't know, but let me just get through the list here. Tom McClintock, Debbie Lesko, Julia Letlow, and Darren LaHood. All of these Republicans condemned the infrastructure bill, implied or explicitly said it was socialism, and then asked for money from it. Perhaps in some instances for multiple projects that they wanted money for. So look, this is the strategy. This should be the go-to strategy for Democrats going forward. Stop letting Republicans get away with their overt hypocrisy. When you juxtapose their statement with a contradictory statement and you put that in an ad, when you broadcast that, that is persuasive to Americans because many Americans are fed up with the hypocrisy and the lies of politicians. So by showcasing how the Republican Party lacks consistency and they have no, no and they have no core ideological beliefs and they'll say one thing and do another when it's, you know, going to give them a political reward, I think that's really important. So for Biden to broadcast their hypocrisy, this is a winning message. Keep it up, but put them on blast for every single issue whenever they give you this opportunity to uh, do it. So apparently Tulsi Gabbard is no longer a Democrat. Now, I for one actually thought that she had already left the Democratic Party, but it's naive of me to assume that she wouldn't go out in some loud manner because this is what grifters do. They make an announcement and a spectacle of everything because they're trying to position themselves for their next grift. And that is exactly what Tulsi Gabbard is doing. So it's official. Now she is no longer part of the Democratic Party and her reasoning, as you're going to see in this video, is deeply, deeply unserious. Take a look. I can no longer remain in today's Democratic Party that's under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers who are driven by cowardly wokeness, who divide us by racializing every issue and stoking anti-white racism, who actively work to undermine our God-given freedoms that are enshrined in our Constitution, who are hostile to people of faith and spirituality, who demonize the police but protect criminals at the expense of law-abiding Americans, who believe in open borders, who weaponize the national security state to go after their political opponents, and above all, who are dragging us ever closer to nuclear war. Now, I believe in a government that's of the people, by the people, and for the people. Unfortunately, today's Democratic Party does not. Instead, it stands for a government that is of, by, and for the powerful elite. Now, I'm calling on my fellow common sense, independent-minded Democrats to join me in leaving the Democratic Party. If you can no longer stomach the direction that the so-called woke Democratic Party ideologues are taking our country, then I invite you to join me. Tulsi, no, come back. Tulsi, no. Tulsi, Tulsi, Tulsi. What are we going to do without you? Without you, without you. Please come back. Come back. Come back. 
Oh, Tulsi. <laughs> I mean, those reasons there are not serious reasons. She just listed off Republican Party talking points. Now, we'll go to one of the ads that she ran during the 2020 presidential election, and you'll see that she sounded very, very different. But this is what this is all about. Now, we'll address what she said here in a moment, but let me just point out what this is about. Tulsi Gabbard recognized in 2020 that she can never win a Democratic Party primary because both the left and the center flanks of the Democratic Party, they don't like her. So her only option, if she wants real power like presidential power, is to run in the Republican Party because they have seemingly embraced her. Now, the things that she said are very yikes. Most of it is just standard right-wing talking points, but she says that the Democratic Party is under, uh, under the control of an elitist cabal of warmongers who are driven by cowardly wokeness who divide us by racializing every issue and stoking anti-white racism. What exactly does that look like, Tulsi Gabbard? How specifically is the Democratic Party stoking anti-white racism? Give us at least one or two anecdotes. She's not doing that. She's just using these buzzwords that are very popular among the GOP's base, and that's for good reason, because she's trying to pander to them in order to perhaps one day ask for their votes. If not for the president, perhaps to be the governor of Hawaii or something like that, or to just have a platform on Fox News or Newsmax or something like that. So this is nonsensical. What she's saying um, is completely idiotic because the Democratic Party, between the time she ran for president to lead this party and now, has not substantially changed. So why is it that all of a sudden it's too much for you to stomach, but just two years ago, the Democratic Party was a party that you wanted to lead? Sure, she had her criticisms of the Democratic Party. We all do. But now it's just so intolerable that she can't take it and she has to leave the Democratic Party. Does this not reek of opportunism? Does this not seem like she is shamelessly trying to grift here? She also says that the Democratic Party is hostile to people of faith and spirituality. Again, how so? I, for one, am an anti-theist. I've made that abundantly clear, but I would never ban religion. I would never try to discriminate against or persecute somebody who practiced the religion. I would just try to convince them to not subscribe to any religion. But that's not an attack, that's just a simple disagreement. In what way, however, is the Democratic Party attacking religion and spirituality? Most Democrats are religious. So this just makes no sense. Again, it's just a right-wing talking point. It's not supposed to make sense. These vapid talking points aren't intended for people like you or me. This is intended for a very narrow audience who she's trying to appeal to. Also, um, Democrats demonize the police but protect criminals at the expense of law-abiding Americans. Um, I don't understand how you can say this when Biden has consistently called for increases in funding to the police. And this is what Republicans were saying in 2020. Again, why was this not an issue then, but it's only an issue now? Joe Biden quite literally was the individual who Tulsi Gabbard endorsed back in 2020 over Bernie Sanders. So what's so different about him as the president now? compared to when he was running for president when you endorsed him. It makes no sense, right? Also, she says, I believe um, in a government that's of, by, and for the people. Unfortunately, today's Democratic Party uh, does not. Now, she says that the party is run by elites. That's true. Both parties are run by elites. 
But again, this hasn't changed since she ran as a Democrat in 2020, since she was a congressional Democrat before 2020. It hasn't changed. Just all of a sudden, she can't stomach it. I mean, she's so full of shit. You can smell it through the video. It's embarrassing. And the implication is that the Republican Party of all political parties, the two that we have, they're the ones who believe in a government of by and for the people. They quite literally try to stage a coup to kill democracy in the United States. So to make this critique of the Democratic Party in 2022 is a little bit absurd. You can criticize both parties. Perhaps the Democratic Party isn't very fair when it comes to Democratic Party primaries. But she's just implying it's only Republicans who care about democracy. She says this after we all saw the 2020 insurrection attempt. I just, I don't know who would believe this, but I actually do think that Republicans, they would buy what she's selling because they don't necessarily verify anything. A lot of Republican voters are very gullible. That's not to say that there aren't gullible Democratic Party voters, but Republican voters, they don't verify. They just hear the talking points, the buzzwords, and they think, okay, that person belongs in my tribe, and that's it. So Tulsi Gabbard knows that she can get away with what she couldn't get away with in the Democratic Party, with the left. Remember, she tried to position herself as a progressive, as the heir to Bernie Sanders' throne. But the left saw through that when she ran for president. So, you know, they verified, they checked her record, but she knows that Republican voters aren't going to do that. So that's why she is now potentially positioning herself to be a Republican presidential candidate. But really, I think that this is also possibly about her trying to get a show on Fox News. And that, I think, is actually very realistic. As John Whitehouse tweeted, Tulsi Gabbard has made at least 100 appearances on Fox News evening programming, 7 p.m. through 11 p.m., including a whopping 46 appearances on Tucker Carlson's show, including guest hosting it. So if you've made that many appearances on Fox News, if you guest hosted on Tucker Carlson, they're definitely interested. But I think that maybe they weren't interested in you as a host, as a permanent host, while you still have that Democrat label. Maybe that's why she's shedding it. I'm not really sure. Either way, we know that she's full of shit, but I just wanna uh, juxtapose what you just watched with one of her ads from 2020. She was never a very substantive politician. She was always very vapid and platitude driven, but just still the difference here is very, very clear. They say no money to give our teachers raises, no money for the opioid crisis, yet we waste billions every month on wasteful wars that haven't made us any safer. Families are forced into debt so their loved ones can get health care, while politicians push a defense budget greater than China, Russia, the UK, and Germany combined. I'm Tulsi Gabbard. I'm running for president and approve this message because it's time we invest in the American people, our families, and our future. So she went from talking about health care to talking about cowardly wokeness and anti-white racism. I mean, folks, she's full of shit. And if you are on the left and you still don't see it, then you are as gullible as the right. But I think that the overwhelming majority of leftists and even, you know, uh, centrists, they can see that Tulsi Gabbard, 
She is effectively a right winger. I say effectively because, again, I don't necessarily believe that she has a core political ideology. I think that she really doesn't have any values. Her values are what will get her to a position of power or influence. That's what Tulsi Gabbard is about. She's made it abundantly clear, and she will flip on a dime if it means that she can position position herself for a better grift. I mean, we all saw her run a campaign against regime change wars, and then she endorsed the drone war, essentially. I think it was last year when she did that. Everyone talked about this on the left. So she has no values. She is an empty vessel, and she's just going to do what makes her money. I think that everyone sees that by now. And this video is hilarious because I don't think there were many people that thought she was a Democrat still. Um, I certainly thought that she had quietly exited the Democratic Party. But still, again, when you're a grifter, you don't lose this opportunity to make money and gather more support. Of course, you're going to make a huge amount of noise in order to better position yourself for your next grift. And that's what she did. And in a way, we're guilty of buying into it by even talking about this grifter. But again, if it wasn't already clear, I just had to make it abundantly clear. Tulsi Gabbard is completely full of shit. And if you don't see it, congratulations. You're dumb. Like just a few weeks ago in, in Youngstown, on the stage... Uh, Donald Trump said to J.D. Vance, all you do is kiss my ass to get my support. He said that. And then the New York Times did a fake story today, big front page, that J.D. wasn't sure if he wanted my support. J.D. is kissing my ass. He wants my support. So I'm 18 points up. If I was 18 points down, he wouldn't want my support. I'll tell you, Jim Jordan wants my support, and he's doing just fine, right? No, these are fake people. These are dishonest. These are very dishonest people. That's bad because that means J.D. Vance is going to do whatever he wants. Mitch McConnell's given him 40 million. He's going to do what he wants. And Peter Thiel gave him a 15 million. He's going to do what he wants. And here's the thing that's most troubling about this lack of courage is that after Trump took J.D. Vance's dignity from him on the stage in Youngstown, J.D. Vance got back up on stage and said, start shaking his hand, take a picture, saying, hey, aren't we having a great time here tonight? I don't know anybody I grew up with, I don't know anybody I went to high school with that would allow somebody to take their dignity like that and then get back up on stage. We need leaders who have courage to take on their own party. And I've proven that, and he was called an ass kisser by the former president. You just watched Ohio Senate Democratic candidate Tim Ryan embarrass his Republican opponent, J.D. Vance, and that was almost difficult to watch, not necessarily because I felt sympathy for J.D. Vance, but because of how humiliating it had to have felt. Like, this is quintessential cringe here, to call out the way that you're an ass-kisser and the way that Trump called you an ass-kisser, and you just sat there and smiled and nodded along really really embarrassing and i wasn't necessarily sure the way that tim ryan could use this in an attack but i think it was really clever to tie this to lack of courage now what i also really liked about what tim ryan did there was he called out the corruption with jd vance he took millions of dollars from peter Thiel, a gop billionaire so obviously if you get elected he's going to call in some favors and like the stooge that you are you're going to deliver 
So what makes this situation even worse for J.D. Vance is knowing the way that J.D. Vance was formerly an anti-Trump Republican and he called for more moderation in the Republican Party. And now here he is, a Trump sycophant who's as extreme as he can possibly be. So the Columbia Dispatch reports in 2016, Vance said Trump was reprehensible and cultural heroin and wondered whether Trump might be America's Hitler. But when Vance decided to run for the Senate, he went full MAGA, complimenting Trump at every opportunity. Vance used to call for a more moderate GOP a little more than a decade ago. He wrote a series of articles where he endorsed affirmative action, savaged Republicans as anti-science, and rejected partisan vitriol. Of all the things I can't stand about politics, he wrote, the tendency to emotionalize a difficult topic is probably the worst. He wanted a more measured and moderate Republican Party, one that was more socially inclusive. So this man is a fraud, and I think it's really important for Democrats to not just call out corruption of Republicans, but to also call out the ways in which they are extreme, because for years now we've heard the way that Democrats are socialist, Democrats are communist, the far left is taking over the Democratic Party. It's just factually incorrect. But Democrats haven't pushed back. But recently, Republicans have gone so far to the right that you can't not notice it. So I think that Democrats need to capitalize on this. And thankfully, Tim Ryan did just that during this debate, and he called out the ways in which he is against gay marriage, abortion, contraception. When J.D. Vance used to support these things. Take a look. The problem we have here is we have 15,000 marriages uh, here in Ohio. And when you read Justice Thomas's opinion on abortion, which J.D. Vance wants to celebrate, it also included in there nullifying these marriages, and it also included in there getting rid of uh, protections around birth control. This is what I'm trying to explain to Ohioans, that J.D. Vance is extreme on these issues. No exceptions for rape or incest. He called rape inconvenient. He said he denied it, but it's on tape, right? Now he says he's not for same-sex marriage. He's going right down the line with the absolute most extremists, the guys who want to ban books and everything else. Those are the guys you bring into the state to campaign for you, J.D. These are extreme positions that Ohioans are rejecting. Again, I think this is a good strategy that all Democrats need to implement. If they need to call out the extremism on the right. But Tim Ryan didn't just limit his critique of J.D. Vance's extremism to social issues. He called out the ways in which he actually aided and abetted insurrectionists. J.D. Vance raised money for the legal defense fund of the insurrectionists. This is the kind of extremism, J.D., that we wholly reject. You have video posts. Don't even try to deny it. We got, we got, your, we got your Twitter posts and everything else. Everybody's seen it. He said, help these guys with their legal defense fund. Now, you, can you imagine one guy saying out of one side of his mouth he's pro-cop, and out of the other side of his mouth he's raising money for the insurrectionists who are beating up the Capitol Police? The one guy he tried to raise money for got four years in prison. That right there, my friends, is how it's done. That is just a devastating point because Tim Ryan is an individual who isn't trying to position himself on the left. So strategically, he has to try to appeal to moderate voters. How do you do that? Well, you call out how this is no one who any moderate should be supporting. He funded insurrectionists. On top of that, he is an extremist when it comes to social issues. So he's taking J.D. Vance and putting all of his weaknesses on blast. And I think that this is a really good strategy. Now, one more thing that I wanna to speak to here with regard to this debate, one more clip that I wanna play, is the way that 
J.D. Vance was called out by Tim Bryan for not just his being a cuck by Donald Trump and his extremism, but for his opportunism and how phony he is. You know what I haven't done? I didn't start a fake nonprofit pretending like I was going to help people with addiction like J.D. Vance did. Literally started a nonprofit and didn't spend one nickel on anybody. In fact, he brought in somebody from Purdue Pharma to be the spokesperson for the nonprofit. The same drug company, Big Pharma, the big drug company that had all the pill mills going, got everybody addicted. One million people died, JD. One million people died. And you started a nonprofit to try to take advantage of people in Ohio. And you know what? All you did with it was launch your political career. His campaign manager worked for that nonprofit. He ran a poll to check his own standing from that nonprofit. I think that one thing that became abundantly clear during this debate to voters who were undecided is that J.D. Vance is as phony as you can possibly be. He's an opportunist. And while I can't verify what Tim Ryan said about not a single nickel going to people who were suffering from addiction, everything else he said was spot on. And for additional context, we go to Insider who explains a review by Insider of the nonprofit's tax filings showed that in its first year, our Ohio renewal spent more on management services provided by its executive director, Jai Chambria, who also serves as Vance's top political advisor, than it did on programs to fight opioid abuse. The nonprofit raised so little in each of the last three years, less than $50,000 a year, that it wasn't even required by the IRS to disclose its activities and finances. It's a superficial way for him to say he's helping Ohio, says Doug White, a philanthropy advisor and former director of Columbia University's Master of Science in Fundraising Management. So how many people his nonprofit specifically helped? That information is a little bit more difficult to ascertain, but what's abundantly clear here is that this was nothing more than a vanity project that he used to launch his bid for the Senate. So he can point to this and say, look, this is what I did for the people of Ohio, when in actuality, there wasn't much there there. And for all of J.D. Vance's wealth, there's a number of things that he can do to actually help the people of Ohio but he's not doing that. He's not using his wealth for good. He's a political opportunist and he's trying to say and do anything to get elected. And I think that more than anything, that is what Tim Ryan successfully demonstrated during this debate. So look, Tim Ryan was not my first choice for the Democratic Party nominee. Morgan Harper was, but I won't be voting. So it doesn't really matter. It's not up to me, but I would still definitely vote for Tim Ryan over J.D. Vance because Tim Ryan, even if he isn't as progressive as I want him to be, he's at least competent. He's at least more rational than someone like J.D. Vance, who is inauthentic, who will say whatever he needs to do, who's so craven that even Donald Trump, who endorsed J.D. Vance, called him an ass kisser. We have too much of that already in Washington, D.C. So to have another Trump sycophant come in, I mean, I just I just can't see why anyone would opt for that. Right. So there you have it. Tim Ryan, love him or hate him, did a phenomenal job here. And even lefties like me have got to give credit where it's due. That was a great debate performance. And if he continues to hit J.D. Vance on all of his weaknesses like this, call out the corruption specifically, I think that that will indeed land with voters in Ohio. The Supreme Court has taken up a lot of really substantial cases that could fundamentally transform aspects of the United States, things like democracy with the case of Moore v. Harper. But there is a pair of cases that they've taken up, which is also really important, that hasn't gotten as much attention as the other big cases. Now, these cases 
they have to do with Section 230. And I think that a lot of people are apprehensive about talking about this particular subject because it is very confusing because nobody really knows what the true takeaway would be in the event the Supreme Court struck down Section 230. We've heard a lot about this. We've heard critiques about Section 230 from the left and the right, and the implications of its demise aren't really known. But one thing that is for sure is that it would radically change the Internet. And odds are it would be changed for the worse as opposed to the better. So what exactly is the Supreme Court looking at? Well, Mike Babirnez of Yahoo News explains the Supreme Court this week announced it will take up a pair of cases that could fundamentally change the legal foundations of the Internet. Both cases ask justices to consider how far protections that shield websites and social media companies from legal liability over what users post to their platform should go. Those protections were created in a portion of the Communications Decency Act of 1996 known as Section 230, a provision that has been called the 26 words that created the internet. Section 230 did two crucial things. It established that companies operating websites or social media platforms could not be held legally responsible if their users post content that breaks the law. It also granted them the right to curate, edit, and delete user content as they see fit. So suffice to say, the internet in its current state exists specifically because of Section 230. Without Section 230, the internet might look like a very different place. Now, as I alluded to earlier, both Democrats and Republicans have critiqued Section 230, even though Donald Trump has been particularly vocal in his criticism. But the Democrats who oppose Section 230 claim that websites should be held more culpable if violent extremism is festering on their website, if the proliferation of misinformation on their website continues, whereas Republicans don't like the second provision of Section 230, specifically the one that gives social media websites the power to delete and curate content, um, they don't like that because they claim that these websites all have a liberal bias and it leads to the censorship of conservatives. Now, that critique from Republicans is not really founded by data you know leftists also get banned from social media websites frequently as well they just don't whine about it as much but conservatives in particular they get a ton of traction on websites like facebook where the left just isn't able to compete and they also dominate youtube as well although i don't have data to back that up but just for argument's sake, you can see that there are different arguments against Section 230. Democrats are against one portion of Section 230, and conservatives are against another portion of Section 230. There's two sections of 230, and, you know, there's reasons for both sides to be against it, at least what we've heard. Now, both of the cases that the Supreme Court has taken up, they have to do with families who are suing these tech giants, Twitter, and Google in particular, because a member of these families fell victim to extremists. Now, the families are arguing in these lawsuits that websites should be held legally liable if extremism proliferates on their platforms and they don't take action to stop it. You could read more about this on the SCOTUS blog post about this. Now, the Supreme Court could go either way. They could side with the families and claim yes, these websites, these tech giants in particular, should have done more to prevent extremism that led to the deaths of these families' uh, victims. And they can also take it in a different direction. They can say, well, actually, there's already too much content moderation, or they could just strike down Section 230 altogether. The question is, what does that mean for the internet going forward? And really, nobody really knows. All we can do is speculate, but 
odds are it would mean less freedom on the internet if the Supreme Court in any way decided to take on Section 230 and declare it unconstitutional, either fully or partially. Many communications law experts fear that a decision throwing out Section 230 would create chaos in one of the world's most important industries as companies attempt to quickly react to a sudden and drastic change to the legal landscape. They argue that because few companies would be able to endure the new financial risk of lawsuits over user-generated posts, venues for free speech online would rapidly erode or even disappear. Other sites might go the opposite direction and issue moderation altogether, which would create space for their platforms to turn into cesspools of objectionable content. Kyle Barr of Gizmodo states, if a company like Twitter suddenly finds that it is held liable for each post on its site, the company says that its options would become limited to either folding entirely or conducting extreme amounts of vetting and content moderation, much more than already goes on. This, of course, isn't exactly what conservatives want, or it's at least what they claim that they don't want. So envision that being the product, the end result of the Supreme Court ruling with regard to Section 230, what does this mean for independent media, YouTube shows like my own? Could independent media exist in a post-Section 230 America? I genuinely don't know. Or if it does exist, would it exist in a different fashion? Would this force YouTube to hire content creators, for example, so that way they're not just independent contractors, so that way they have more direct control over what we as YouTubers say. Would Twitter take up a lot more bans? It's so hard to say, and it's horrifying to think about the implications of what this would look like. But as the article alluded to, it could go in the opposite, uh, opposite direction as well, which wouldn't necessarily be ideal. For example, David Ingram of NBC News explains, alternatively, the court could also create a situation in which tech companies have little power to moderate what users post, rolling back years of efforts to limit the reach of misinformation, abuse, and hate speech. So what would that look like in reality? Well, in the event a user, for example, makes a death threat online to a politician, that would disempower websites like Twitter or YouTube from suspending that user. They would have to allow the extremism to go on to that website. They would be unable to do anything about that. It would be in the hands of the local police department where that individual made that complaint. Does that sound like a really good alternative as well? To give them no tools whatsoever to get rid of violence and extremism so YouTube would not be able to remove an ISIS beheading video? I mean, do you understand how both extremes when it comes to Section 230, they don't provide a better alternative to the internet today? There are certainly issues with the internet as it is, but certainly it isn't that there is too much freedom on the internet, it's that there isn't enough freedom. But conservatives, as much as they complain about Section 230, haven't been very helpful in activists' fight to strengthen the internet freedom. For example, they have held up the confirmation of Gigi Sohn to the FCC for almost a year now. Gigi Sohn is a strong supporter of net neutrality, which would create more internet freedom. Because remember, net neutrality is an issue where it would prevent internet service providers like Comcast, AT&T, from picking and choosing which websites they want to prioritize. So they couldn't choose to strangle or throttle 
traffic to their competitor. If AT&T wants to launch, you know, some alternative streaming service, they couldn't then in turn throttle traffic to Netflix. So that way it becomes unbearably slow and people opt for AT&T's alternative. They can't do that with net neutrality. But under Trump's leadership, Ajit Pai repealed net neutrality. And now if Gigi Sohn were to be confirmed, the FCC would have the makeup to actually restore net neutrality. But conservatives have fought against this at every step of the way, claiming that Gigi Sohn is too woke and she wants to censor conservatives when she wants to do the opposite. She wants to enhance freedom on the internet. And even if net neutrality were to be restored, there's other things that need to be done to rein in big tech, because I do believe that they have too much power, right? But not too much power with regard to Section 230, not too much immunity with with regard to Section 230, we need antitrust legislation. And Amy Klobuchar, of all people, actually proposed very strong antitrust legislation. But the vote on this in the Senate has stalled thanks to Chuck Schumer. Now, he keeps promising that there's going to be a vote, but it keeps getting postponed longer and longer and longer. So things like that need to stop. But just imagine for a second the situation where the Supreme Court, these six conservative justices have unlimited authority to remake the internet as they see fit. Well, we don't have to imagine it because they actually do have that power. It's just a matter, a matter of whether or not they'll exercise that power and reshape, strike down, or uh, partially strike down Section 230. The internet could turn into a very dark and dystopian place. And it's already a pretty dark and dystopian place. It's not perfect, right? But things could get a lot worse quickly if Section 230 weren't in place. That is needed for internet freedom. And if they do away with this, then things are going to get really bad. And so I would encourage everyone to pay attention to this case because it is one of the most important cases that the Supreme Court has taken up this term. Joe Rogan hasn't said anything too stupid, at least stupid enough to warrant my coverage, or at least not that I'm aware of over the course of the last couple of months. So maybe he's trying to play it straight to prove all of us wrong about what we thought about him previously, but he certainly broke that streak in a recent podcast episode with Tulsi Gabbard because he is going to recite one of the dumbest fake stories of the year, if not of the last five years or so. Now, he's fallen for fake stories before, but this is by far the dumbest of all of them because he's going to claim that students are using litter boxes at schools if said students identify as cats. Now, this is a claim that has been spread multiple times in multiple school districts. We'll talk about the history of this myth, and I've debunked it multiple times, but now that it is being broadcasted on the largest podcast on the planet, these claims are going to spread exponentially, but let's see what he has to say. There's kids, ready for this? My friend, his wife, is a school teacher, and she works at a school that had to install a litter box in the girls' room because there is a girl who's a furry oh who identifies goodness. as an animal, and her mother badgered the school until they agreed to put a litter box in one of the stalls. So this girl goes into the litter room or to the, the girl's room and urinates or whatever. I don't know if she poops in it. That's pretty gross. <laughs> that's, that's you know I mean? Like if you could teach your cat, by the way, here's the thing. If you could teach your cat 
to use the toilet, you would. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. Like, you don't want a box of piss <laughs> yeah, in your house. Right. It's the worst. I've had cats my whole okay. life. It's the worst <laughs> thing about having cats. you got to clean that box of piss every day. Yeah. Like, it's the greatest thing about dogs. They go outside. Like, you're, you're a fucking the human. The cats got their humans trained. <laughs> Imagine how crazy that is. You're a fucking human being, and you prefer a litter box. You want to piss into a, a pile of sand yeah. rather than use a bathroom yeah. that you could flush the toilet, wipe yourself like a normal person. Like, you're so crazy with uh, what you think an animal is that not only have you said this, but you've conned the school yeah. into putting this fucking litter box in a girl's room. Yeah. Which is bananas. It is. Oh, Joe. Joe, you dumb, dumb bitch. First of all, I don't know if I believe that his friend told him this. I don't know if he's making that up. But one of you are lying here. Either you or your friend or your friend's wife. Listen, whenever somebody tells me something that's really unbelievable, I ask for proof. If one of your friends tells you something that's super bizarre, wouldn't you say, prove it, show me a picture? Why hasn't a single person who has made this claim been able to produce a shred of evidence? Why have we not seen a single picture of a litter box in a school? I mean, if you really wanted to prove this, if there were no evidence, it's easy enough to fake. You could just find some public bathroom, put a litter box in it, shit in it, take a picture of that, and then you can at least spread that onto the internet. It'd take a little bit longer to be debunked, but they're not even trying. They're just repeating what one person says after hearing that from a different person. It's like conspiracy theory telephone and the myth just won't die. Now, forgive me if you've already seen where this came from before because we've talked about this on the program, but this claim originated in December of 2021 when one mom said that she heard someone tell her that there were litter boxes in schools for students who identify as furries. Now, a uh, video was uploaded to the Midland Public School District YouTube channel, and that video went viral after it was shared by Libs of TikTok. But this is what I'm talking about. This is where the myth originated. Um, I want to talk to about the fact that, and I know this is going on nationwide, so it is not just for your, for this board, but our community needs to understand that the agenda that is being pushed through our schools is... Um, just my opinion, but somewhat nefarious when it comes to some of the um, activities. So let's talk about fury, furries. <laughs> it was addressed by a child uh, a couple months ago that they are put in an environment where there are kids that, are, that identify as a furry, a cat or a dog, whatever. And so yesterday I heard that at least one of our schools in our town has a, in one of the unisex bathrooms a litter box for the kids that identify as cats. Now, after she said that, the school district had to come out and say, no, this is not happening. But the myth continued to spread. And school district after school district after school district has had to come out and say, no, we're not putting litter boxes in the restrooms for students after parents hear that claim and then they accuse the school of doing just that. This has happened in Tennessee after a Republican state senator claimed that it was happening. It happened in Michigan where the school district there had to deny this claim. This was the case in Iowa. It was also the case in Wisconsin and in New York 
and Indiana. And the Republican gubernatorial nominee in Colorado, Tudor Dixon, didn't necessarily say that students were shitting in litter boxes at schools, but she did release a list of 30 schools who were allegedly accommodating students that identify as cats. And again, in that instance, multiple school districts in Colorado had to come out and say, no, this is just not happening. And one school official, Brett Miles, said these claims are exhausting. It's a distraction, right? Because they have to take time out of their day to investigate the claims coming from the parents. And it just never ends. So the way that this keeps spreading is that original video, it went viral. Then somebody seemingly a few months later saw it, repeated that claim on social media. That claim then went viral and it just keeps happening. Now, the reason why these claims, as absurd as they are, are persuasive to a lot of Republicans and concerned parents is because the way that they are seemingly or at least ostensibly linked to LGBTQ plus issues, right? Because we see the hysteria over trans issues and we see this Republican claim that, well, if my son can now become a girl and identify as a woman, then what's stopping other students from identifying as cats. It's similar to the gay marriage argument, right? Oh, well, if I as a man can marry another man, then why can't I marry another dog? This is the trans equivalent of that. So it is a tertiary issue with regard to transphobia, right? It's linked to transphobia. And to prove that, well, in this same podcast episode, Joe Rogan and Tulsi Gabbard engaged in transphobia, where they praised self-described theocratic fascist Matt Walsh's documentary, where he just tries to eradicate the existence or disprove, I should say, the existence of trans people, even if that is his end goal. But take a look. The, the ultimate checkmate is what's a woman? Yeah. I mean, when you're coming to with, with wokeness and, and you can identify as a woman, you get to use the female restroom like, OK, but what is it? Yeah. What's a woman? You know, can a man get pregnant? Yes. Okay, well, what is it? Can a biological male get pregnant? And then people panic and they start. The, the pe pe people that identify as yeah. a woman uh, are capable of being pregnant, and people that identify as a male are capable of also being pregnant. Like, what are you saying? Yeah. What's a, say, if you identify as a woman, what are you identifying as? Like, that's the documentary, the Matt Walsh documentary. Exactly. Which is fucking amazing. And also amazing that no one's reviewing it. Mm -hmm. No, no one. one's reviewing yep. it. That documentary is fantastic because Matt Walsh allowed, and you can only get it on the Daily Wire, I think, which is unfortunate, but I get it. You know, I get it. The Daily Wire yeah. produced it. They want people to sign up and they're creating this alternative platform for content. But that documentary is so good because Matt Walsh simply asks questions yeah. and he doesn't, and he does it deadpan. Yeah. And it's amazing watching these people just like, twist reality into yeah. some weird fucking <laughs> contortion it's not <laughs> yeah. it's like yeah. what are you saying it's what so is a woman what exactly. does it mean yeah it's so revealing you know you're you're marching for women's rights but mm -hmm. what does that mean so if i decide i'm a woman and i go out you're marching for me mm -hmm. i'm a woman now right you could just say it yeah like we, we can't have that that doesn't make sense and it doesn't mean you can't have trans people mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that yeah you can most certainly and it doesn't mean you're against yes yeah, you're not denying anyone's existence yeah. either they, they exist 
However, if you want to be pregnant, you must be a biological female. Mm -hmm. This is science. Mm -hmm. Well, I've just got to say that I'm really happy to see Joe Rogan back on the pro-science bandwagon again, because for all of 2021, he was spreading a lot of medical misinformation with regard to COVID-19 and vaccines and ivermectin. So it's nice to see that all of a sudden he values science if he believes he can use science for his anti-trans agenda. But the question, what is a woman? I mean, if it's such a gotcha, if it's so easy to answer it, then answer that question. You know, he talks about how there's this confusion over who can and can't get pregnant. I mean, it's really not that confusing. There are individuals who are non-binary, who are trans men, who have reproductive organs that have children. It's that simple. Trans men can get pregnant. Nobody's saying that if you don't have the reproductive organs, you're going to be able to get pregnant. That's not what anybody is saying. So this is nothing but a straw man, right? And what I want to encourage everyone to do, rather than just debunking that claim myself, I want to point everyone to the problem with Jon Stewart's episode on gender issues because he, I think, did the most thorough deconstruction of all transphobic arguments that I've ever seen. He challenges a right-wing attorney general, and what he did was flawless. And I dare anyone who's transphobic to watch that and try to come up with some counter-arguments because it is very difficult because its arguments are soundproof because they are grounded in data, in the medical consensus, right? So the reason why I showed you that clip primarily is to show you the way that this litter box myth is being championed by people who are also hysterical over trans issues. Now, the last thing that I want to show you to put a cherry on top of this shit Sunday is the way that they praised an anti-LGBTQ governor who single-handedly perhaps repopularized anti-LGBTQ plus hate in this country. Ron DeSantis. I and mean, I think if they had someone like Ron DeSantis, who seems to be like the most reasonable amongst the, the potential candidates, he seems to be, you know, a, a pretty no nonsense guy, not without his flaws, but it he's more reasonable than anything that I'm seeing on the left. Yeah. The, at least with his the way he handled COVID. Yeah. He's more reasonable than anyone on the left. And Tulsi Gabbard agrees. She's just jumping right into this new Republican grift, right? She just left the Democratic Party yesterday. And in that same day when this podcast episode was recorded, she's already on the DeSantis train. Now, I love how in the last clip that I showed you, he claimed that, you know, we've got to trust the science. But here he's praising DeSantis, claiming that he's reasonable because of his COVID response. Let me remind you what Ron DeSantis did. He basically did nothing to handle COVID-19. But what was especially egregious is the way that he banned schools from implementing mask mandates. I thought that you were pro-science, Joe Rogan. What does the science say about masks? What do you think that they're faulty as well? Because that isn't what the scientific consensus, consensus believes. And if Joe Rogan actually believes that, I would encourage him the next time that he has surgery, instruct your surgeon to not wear masks. Let them cough inside of your body and see how you feel about that. I think that you might argue, mm, I'd feel better if you had the mask on, right? So Joe Rogan is an imbecile, and I don't think that that's going to change anytime soon. He brings on people, guests in particular, that just will agree with him or parrot what he has to say. He very rarely brings on somebody who will challenge him. Yeah. But this is Joe Rogan. This isn't necessarily a surprise to see him fall for another dumb story. But just to see how dumb this story is, it really...
proves how unintelligent he is, how he is just not intellectually curious. Because again, a normal person who doesn't have a massive platform, if you heard something preposterous like he heard from your friend, wouldn't you say, bullshit, give me proof, show me a picture. But he's not curious enough to ask that. He just thinks, oh, well, you know, the schools have gone woke, so this must be true. I'll take it at face value and then repeat that on my podcast to millions of viewers. It's just frustrating, but this is why misinformation spreads. And now I feel very sad for the school districts who are going to be receiving calls after listening to this podcast, asking whether or not their kids are shitting in litter boxes at schools, because a lot of school officials around the country are going to have to, again, debunk this claim because dipshits like Joe Rogan are repeating it. And the dipshits who listen to him themselves are not curious enough to investigate this. Look, rather than harassing the school districts, if you are skeptical still, visit the schools. Talk to the principal, ask if they can show you the bathrooms and see for yourself. Odds are you will not find any litter boxes. And if you do, then we have a problem. But until then, shut the fuck up and show us the evidence. Otherwise, stop spreading this goddamn myth that just won't die. Holy shit. The National Labor Relations Board has accused Starbucks of illegally retaliating against employees who have tried to form unions, and they have an abundance of evidence to support these claims. For months now, we've detailed the way that Starbucks has been going out of their way to penalize employees who are trying to form unions. And their union busting includes cutting hours to full-time employees so that way they no longer qualify for healthcare benefits, offering new exclusive benefits to employees who are not engaging in forming a union. And they've also fired workers who have been trying to form unions. And they've been so brazen about this that a federal judge back in August actually ordered them to rehire seven union leaders who they fired. So it's been going on, but yet they claim that this isn't happening and that they're not going out of their way to retaliate against employees who are trying to form unions. It's a laughable claim, but as little as we already believe them, now we have definitive proof that this is indeed what they're doing. And a manager is speaking out saying that he, in his authority as manager, was instructed by the company to punish employees who engage in trying to form a union. As Common Dreams explains, David Almond, who until January managed several stores in the Buffalo area, where the pro-labor push among Starbucks workers across the US began in 2021, told the NLRB in sworn testimony in August that the company had provided him with a list of pro-union employees and told him to find reasons to reprimand or penalize them. According to a transcript of Almond's testimony, which Bloomberg obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request, the company pushed back when Almond told higher-ups that a particular person on the list was an exemplary employee and there was nothing for which he could reprimand her. A corporate employee told Almond to go through her files, he told the NLRB, and also said to him, I'm sure there's something in there we can use against her. The list provided to Almond included workers that the company had had determined support of the unionization campaign, which has now spread from Buffalo to 330 stores in 38 states, with 248 stores so far voting in favor of joining a union. Now, that last sentence right there is why they are so desperate. Within the span of one year, in fact, less than a year, hundreds of stores have unionized. So this momentum isn't slowing down anytime soon. So Starbucks is grasping for straws here. They're trying to find anything to dissuade their workers from forming unions. And it's just not working, which is why they're going so far as to even illegally punish these workers for trying to form a union. 
you can't do that. It's illegal, but they don't care because whatever fine that they'll end up being slapped with, it's less than the cost of having to pay their workers more in the end if this unionization effort continues to spread. Now, there are a couple of other things specifically that Almond said here. He said that he was instructed to follow a worker after they were seen with a pro-union sign. Now, I don't know if they told Almond to follow this worker outside of store hours. Either way, that's incredibly creepy. On top of that, uh, he was advised to remain present in stores at all times, so that way, if there's any union talk, you can break that shit up immediately. And yeah, so he ended up quitting because he's principled and he didn't want to do things like this. Now, I absolutely believe him. There's no reason to not believe him and every reason to not believe what Starbucks is saying here. But when I was the manager of a blockbuster, they never instructed us to break up union activity. I mean, there was no union activity. It was owned by Dish Network at the time and the company was going under. That was abundantly clear. So they never trained us with regard to unions, but they did instruct us to crack down on employees who weren't meeting sales quotas. So... Corporate absolutely demands certain things from management. And if management doesn't meet expectations, then they get penalized as well. So seeing that Almond probably didn't want to engage in these things or definitely didn't want to engage in these things, he foresaw that he didn't really have a future at this company. And that since he wasn't engaging in the union busting that they demanded, he was going to be fired. So that's why he uh, decided to resign and leave the company. So it's, it's really... It's sad because the way that they uh, turn workers against workers, even though we're talking about management here, still management, this is a working class individual, but the company demands that management be extremely hard on workers and this animosity that that pressure from corporate creates and fosters that leads to these situations where the environment at work is so toxic that these types of union conversations can't even take place, which is why I think it's relatively rare. But in the case of Starbucks, you see absolute solidarity here, not just with the workers, but with manage management as well. And the only time we've seen, at least to my knowledge, we've seen Starbucks managers really crack down on employees who are unionizing is when a manager quits or gets fired and then corporate brings in a new manager who is willing to be a union buster. Now, I'm not sure if that person worked at corporate previously or if that individual was hired specifically with the um, knowledge knowing that they're going to be expected to break up these unions. I'm not sure. But to be put in that situation where you have to go after your employees when you know that they did nothing wrong for one and knowing that it's illegal. Yeah, I don't. I don't, uh, you know, fault Almond for quitting. So these are the things that Starbucks is going to continue to do because the unionization is spreading and they're absolutely terrified. And you know what? You love to see it. I know that they don't fear the fines. I know that they don't care that they're breaking the law, but still to see them squirm this much because of the unionization momentum, it's just really good to see. The labor movement is like the one thing that gives me hopium, and I absolutely support the workers here. I just want to leave you with this final note. If you see a Starbucks location in your area that is unionizing, do not cross the picket line. Stand in solidarity with those workers. Do not shop at that location. If that Starbucks is fighting this unionization effort, that's one thing that I always instruct my viewers. I know that wide-scale boycotts are very difficult to form, but one thing that you can do on a small level, you can make a small difference simply by not shopping at that location in support of those workers.
and I'll leave that there. Alright folks, I just finished watching the latest January 6th public hearing, and there was a lot of information there to unpack. I can't possibly recap all of it in this short video, so what I'll do is, uh, as I usually do, I'll advise you to watch the whole thing. But I want to share what I believe is the most significant moment from this entire event. And I know a lot of you are thinking that it's probably the end where they announced the subpoena, and we'll talk about that. But I actually think a different moment is much more significant. So let's watch and then I'll explain to you why I think this is so crucial. I remember maybe a week after the election was called, I popped into the Oval just to like give the president the headlines and see how he was doing. And he was looking at the TV and he said, can you believe I lost to this effing guy? So we just watched Alyssa Farah, White House Communications Director, tell all of us that Trump told her, can you believe I lost to this effing guy? That's huge. Because up until this point, we really didn't have evidence that Trump knew he lost the election. I was kind of 50-50 on this. I think that he probably knew he was lying, but at the same time, it's Donald Trump. I don't think that he has the mental fortitude <laughs> to be president. I never thought that, right? So there was this possibility in my mind that he believed the bullshit that he was espousing. But now we know that, no, he actually was knowingly and purposefully misleading people. Every time he claimed that the election was stolen, we now know that he knew he lost. So when it comes to criminal intent, this is that moment that they have against Donald Trump. He incited an insurrection at the Capitol knowingly under false pretenses. He spread disinformation. We now know that this is abundantly clear, and this is very, very significant. Because again, intent matters when it comes to criminal cases. In the event they do refer this to the Justice Department for prosecution or indictment or whatever they can do. This is huge. We now know he knows. Anytime he continues to spread this lie, we now know that he knows it's not true. He knows he lost and he's mad about it. So I, I think that that is really, really significant um now there's one other moment that stood out in terms of what trump knew but i want to read this article from the hill that gives us uh, some additional context which i think is important so the hill reports former president trump told his then chief of staff this is embarrassing and i don't want people to know that we lost after the Supreme Court ruled against him on a key case about the 2020 election. Former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson told the House Select Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 Capitol riot. The lawsuit considered by the Supreme Court in December of 2020 was filed in Texas and challenged the presidential election results in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Representative Adam Kinzinger, a member of the January 6th panel, said Trump regarded the legal action as his last chance at success in the courts. Now, out of context, him saying this is embarrassing and I don't want people to know that we lost can be taken as him admitting that he knew he lost the election. But that right there within the proper context is not as clear as what Farah said, where he said, can you believe that I lost to this effing guy? Because there he's clearly talking about the overall election. But here, when he says this is embarrassing, I don't want people to know that we lost. Well, he can simply argue, well, I was referring to the Supreme Court case. I am embarrassed that we lost the Supreme Court case, lost in the courts. But also, you can make the argument 
that maybe at that point he believed that it was over and he could no longer challenge the results of the election. So at that moment, he realized he lost and he didn't want it to be known that he lost the general election. It's not that clear, though. What is clear is what Farah said, where he looked at her and said, can you believe I lost to this effing guy? That is very, very clear. And I think we'll go much further in proving criminal intent. Now, there were other moments that I think were really important from the hearing. There was message exchanges between the Secret Service. There was, I think, a fascinating video where they showed Nancy Pelosi along with Chuck Schumer, and they later met with Republicans, and they were making calls to governors trying to find ways to remedy the situation. And I, I don't necessarily know what they were trying to prove uh, other than Trump wasn't doing his due diligence. He was just sitting idly by watching all of this unfold on television while members of Congress were the ones who were trying to stop all of this nonsense. So I think that that's really what they were trying to show. But ultimately, I don't think that it's as significant as Farah's little 13-second snippet there. Now, the headlines are all going to be talking about the subpoena. Now, if you didn't watch it, this was the very last moment from the hearing where they voted for a subpoena unanimously. A recorded vote is requested. The clerk will call the roll. Ms. Cheney? Aye. Ms. Cheney? Aye. Ms. Lofgren? Aye. Ms. Lofgren? Aye. Mr. Schiff? Aye. Mr. Schiff? Aye. Mr. Aguilar? Aye. Mr. Aguilar? Aye. Mrs. Murphy? Aye. Mrs. Murphy? Aye. Mr. Raskin? Aye. Mr. Raskin, aye. Mrs. Luria? Aye. Mrs. Luria, aye. Mr. Kinzinger? Kinzinger, aye. Mr. Kinzinger, aye. Mr. Chairman? Aye. Mr. Chairman, aye. The clerk will report the vote. Mr. Chairman, on this vote, there are nine ayes and zero noes. The resolution is agreed to. Without objection, a motion to reconsider is laid on the table. The chair requests that those in the hearing room remain seated until the Capitol Police have escorted members from the room. Without objection, the committee stands adjourned. Okay, so I think this is obviously really important. Issuing a subpoena to a former president is no small thing. Will he comply with that subpoena, though? Probably not. Um, will anything come of this? Will they get testimony from Donald Trump, even if he complies with the subpoena? Probably not. I mean, again, it's impossible to say, but he can plead the fifth. And that's kind of their basis for issuing the subpoena because they had 30 officials, I believe was the number. All plead the fifth, people close to Trump, so they were missing crucial details to conclude their investigation. Therefore, you know, that was the grounds for them issuing the subpoena to Trump. But if they get him before them, he's just going to plead the fifth. And furthermore, what I expect entirely is for him to fight this subpoena. And if it is the case that Democrats lose the House, then they will no longer have the power to fight Trump with this subpoena, you know, with the House of Representatives. So ultimately, it's a big deal. But I don't necessarily believe that this is going to amount to anything. And I really wish that they would have issued this subpoena earlier in this investigation because it seemingly extends this when they need to be wrapping it up right now because if kevin mccarthy takes control as the uh speaker of the house you know this committee 
is going to go the way of the dodo or if he lets it exist you know it's not going to have the autonomy that it has now i'm not necessarily sure the specifics on what will or won't happen this is all just me like you know speculating but they need to get this done now so the subpoena it feels a little bit too late in my opinion but still i do think that it's important so they can at least say that they tried to reach out to Donald Trump, and even if he doesn't comply, even if he does comply, but pleads the fifth to every single question, I do still think that this is a necessary move. So overall, my biggest takeaway, and perhaps you'll disagree with me, was that Trump now knows. We can no longer say, well, does he believe what he's saying? I get that it's Trump and he's mentally unstable and he's deeply, deeply unintelligent. Maybe he believes the election lies. Nope, we now know he knew he lost the election. And this is what they stated at the beginning of these hearings back in summer, but now they have proved it with Farah's testimony here. And I think that this is really substantial. Trump is knowingly spreading disinformation, even if this is killing democracy. And that is no small thing. And I absolutely hope that he is prosecuted because this can't stand. We can't have a president who is knowingly lying about the results of an election, especially now seeing what that does to democracy. So I'll leave that there. Well, folks, I have to give Ben Shapiro credit, a little bit of credit, but nonetheless credit because he did something that I think is admittedly very difficult to do. He called out one of his own colleagues for doing something that I think is reprehensible. So as you'll recall, Candace Owens, she defended Kanye West after he made his disgustingly anti-Semitic tweet saying he's going to go to DEFCON 3 against Jewish people. Now, before we get to Ben Shapiro's remarks, let me remind you what Candace Owens said. If you are an honest person, you did not think this tweet was anti-Semitic. You did not think that he wrote this tweet because he hates or wants to genocide Jewish people. This does not represent the beginning of the Holocaust. That's if you're an honest person, you'll meet that. You, you will admit that, right? If you're an honest person, when you read this tweet, you had no idea what the hell he was talking about. I had, I had no idea when I read this tweet what the hell he was talking about. It's like you cannot even say the word Jewish without people getting upset in the same way that you're not allowed to say black anymore. In the same way that if you talk about the struggles of black Americans and you talk about the people in black America, like Patrice Cullors, the founder of Black Lives Matter, who are harnessing emotions to enrich their pockets, right? Yeah, so you already know how I feel about what she said because we talked about this on Monday, but this is what Ben Shapiro said, and to his credit, he calls her flat out dead wrong for what she said there. On a personal level, I get Candace defending her friend. She's very close with Kanye West. I get it. I don't think that her defense of Kanye is correct or convincing. I, I think that the, the real answer to the Kanye West of it is Kanye is a bipolar human being. I mean, he's made this very clear. I talked about this on the show. And bipolar people tend to say extraordinarily bizarre things and ugly things. And again, that doesn't excuse the bizarreness or the ugliness of the actual remarks, which, as I will say once again for the 1,000th time, are in fact anti-Semitic. But there's a difference between somebody cohesively saying what Kanye West said and Kanye West saying things in broken grammar in the midst of what appears to be a bizarre period of his life in which he is presenting Adidas executives with porn in front of their face. I'm not going to treat that the same as Ilhan Omar saying openly anti-Semitic stuff as an elected congressperson in the United States of America. So when it comes to Candace, I mean, look, 
am I still friends with Of course, I'm friendly with Candace. Am I friendly with Tucker Carlson? I mean, Tucker cut a segment from his interview with Kanye, in which Kanye said a bunch of anti-Semitic stuff. Listen, am I friends with Joe Rogan? Joe Rogan had on Roger Waters the other day. Roger Waters is a ridiculous anti-Semitic jerk. I mean, like, wide varieties of disagreement happen in this space. Bottom line is, when it comes to Kanye's remarks, undoubtedly anti-Semitic remarks. When it comes to Candace's defense of those remarks, I think Candace is dead wrong on what she said while respecting her relationship with Kanye. She knows Kanye better than I do. She knows his motive. Okay, whatever. All of that I'm, I'm sure is true, and I will take that for granted. What she said about Kanye, I radically disagree with. I think that she is dead wrong. I think that it is, it, it, it is not a, a, it betrays a, a lack of understanding about anti-Semitism and, and the scope of anti-Semitism. But we're allowed to have those disagreements. That's the way this works. All right, so listen, I have a lot of disagreements with Ben Shapiro. I think that he overall is very disingenuous. I think that he presents statistics and data in very dis disingenuous ways. Having said that, though, one thing that I have to give him credit for, aside from this, is the fact that he is much more honest than other right-wing propagandists. I still think that he is dishonest, and I think that he he has this goal to ultimately serve as a tool for the Republican propaganda machine, but he still goes the extra step to at least try to be more reasonable. He's not explicitly anti-vax. We can't even say that about people who still purport to be on the left, like Jimmy Dore. He condemned Trump when he was claiming that the election was stolen, and now he's calling out a colleague. Look, you have to give him credit for this. Was he using kid gloves? Of course he was. But to still call out your colleague and say that she was dead wrong, I think that that takes courage. And I'm not taking that away from Ben Shapiro. I think that he absolutely has earned a little teeny tiny bit of respect from me. And the reason why I talk about Ben Shapiro so much on this program is because he has a lot of influence with the younger generation. Zoomers, they tune in, they see his argument, it gets recommended to them either through an advertisement or through the YouTube algorithm or TikTok algorithm, and he has a lot of influence. So I try to debunk his arguments because he is seemingly an intellectual because of the way that he speaks. Speaking fast apparently means that uh, you're smart. So aesthetically, he has this veneer of, a, of an intellectual, and I think that he's absolutely influential. Unlike a lot of other people, I think he's a very effective propagandist. I wouldn't say that he's as effective as Tucker Carlson, but nonetheless, he's very influential. So this is why, you know, a lot of folks on the left like myself focus on him. But having said that, though, I recognize that he is probably the less dangerous of all the right-wing propagandists, even if what he says is deeply deeply troubling sometimes. Now, I do, of course, take issue with elements of his argument there. I think that conflating Ilhan Omar quoting a song all about the Benjamins to Kanye West saying he's going to go to uh, Death Con 3 against Jewish people, and even saying that what Ilhan said is worse because Kanye West is bipolar, I take issue with that. I mean, he, to his, to his credit, he didn't say that you get a pass because you're bipolar. There are, again, millions of bipolar Americans who don't, don't say terrible things like Kanye West. Yes, there are uh, things that bipolar people perhaps say that they wouldn't necessarily say otherwise during manic episodes. I, again, like I have a family member who's bipolar. I know people who are bipolar. But Kanye West, he gets this pass that normal working class bipolar people don't get. So I think that when you have that much influence, no, I'm sorry, I'm not going to give you a pass, especially when you are punching down on a marginalized community. 
anti-Semitism has been on the rise in the United States, and I think that this is a serious issue, and I'm glad that Ben Shapiro agrees with me and acknowledges that. I just wish that he would extend that sympathy for Jewish people to other marginalized people, like trans people and LGBTQ plus people, but you can't win them all, and in this instance, at least he is speaking out against the anti-Semitism of his own colleagues. Now, it gets worse for Candace Owens because since she made that defense of Kanye West, we learned even more about him that leads us to believe that he's an anti-Semitic scumbag. For example, we all saw unaired footage from his interview with Tucker Carlson where he said even more bigoted statements. We also learned that former TMZ employee Jonathan Lathan Jr. claims that Kanye reportedly, quote, said something like, I love Hitler, I love Nazis, something to that effect, according to Lathan. And it's honestly not that surprising. In fact, just a couple of days ago, Charlemagne said this about Kanye West. Like Kanye West woke up and just chose to be a Nazi one day. Like I wouldn't be surprised if he comes out and tells you how much he loves Hitler. So if Ben Shapiro can call out Candace Owens, a friend, why can't Candace Owens call out Kanye West? also a friend. It speaks to her character, and I think that the reason why she's not explicitly condemning his anti-Semitism is because Candace Owens herself may be anti-Semitic. Now, this is what she said about Hitler. Like, I'm just gonna put this out there. This was her reaction to her comments about Hitler when Ted Lieu shared it after she was uh, brought in to testify before uh, Congress. I agree. I, I actually don't have any problems at all with the word nationalism. I think that it gets, uh, the definition gets poisoned. Um, by elitists that actually want globalism. Globalism is what I what I don't want. So when you think about whenever we say nationalism, the first thing people think about, in at least in America, is Hitler. You know, he was a national socialist. But if Hitler just wanted to make Germany great and have things run well, okay, fine. The problem is, is that he wanted he had dreams outside of Germany. He wanted to globalize. He wanted everybody to be German. Everybody to be speaking German. Yeah, so I'm not going to be that surprised that someone like that won't condemn even explicit anti-Semitism when she said something like that, that disgusting and grotesque. So Ben Shapiro, he gets credit, but I've got to push back a little bit against what he said here besides the Ilhan Omar uh, thing. So he allows people on his platform that are disgusting. Matt Walsh is probably the most odious figure in all of right-wing media with the exception of maybe Tucker Carlson. This is a stochastic terrorist who self-identifies as a theocratic fascist, meaning that he wants to take away religious liberty from anyone who isn't a Christian, and he wants an authoritarian regime. These are things that Ben Shapiro is against. And you can disagree with people. You know, I have political disagreements with family members, but that's not just a political disagreement. It's much more than that. It's deeply bigoted against folks like Ben Shapiro. So the fact that he lets people like that on his platform, people who say disgusting anti-Semitic things like Candace Owens on his platform, but yet will take any little thing that Rashida Tlaib, a Palestinian woman, or Ilhan Omar says, and nitpick and claim that it's anti-Semitic, it shows you that he does have a double standard, but once in a while he is willing to, uh, I guess, call them out when they go a little bit too far. So I wish that there was more consistency from Ben Shapiro on this issue. I know that he knows that what his colleagues do and say is really fucked up. It's just a matter of why only is he now choosing to call out Con uh, Candace Owens. Uh, I'm not complaining. I'm glad that he called her out, but I wish that he would do this more frequently. If he did, I would have much more respect for him. But again, we're talking about a right-wing propagandist, so the standards are already very, very low. 
But either way, I don't want to detract from what he did here because, again, I think that this is really important. It takes a lot of courage to call out your friend publicly. So for him to say that she was dead wrong, I respect that and I commend him for what he did. I don't say this often, so soak it in, Ben Shapiro. Good job. Well, folks, I want to take some time to talk about the COVID-19 vaccines. I haven't been talking about them frequently because there hasn't really been any new updates, but I will take this opportunity to remind everyone watching to go get your updated COVID-19 booster. I'm, of course, talking about the bivalent booster, which targets the Omicron variant. I think this is really important. I got mine a couple of weeks ago feel fine. I haven't turned into a demon yet or have been possessed by the devil, at least to my knowledge. Go get it. It'll protect yourself. Add an extra layer of protection, at least. I think it's really important. Uh, but I want to talk about the vaccines because there's a new study that was just released by the National Bureau of Economic Research, and they essentially confirm what we all suspected. COVID-19 has disproportionately killed Republicans. Now, this isn't surprising, but seeing the numbers here actually startled me because I didn't suspect it to be that huge of a gap between Democrats and Republicans. And it just goes to show you how lethal the anti-vax movement was. So let's get to the article here. This is from James Risen of The Intercept, who writes, in a detailed examination of data from Ohio and Florida, the National Bureau of Economic Research has found that political affiliation has emerged as a potential risk factor for COVID-19, and that significantly more Republicans than Democrats have died from the virus since the introduction of vaccines in early 2021 to protect against the disease. By cross-referencing voter registration data and mortality figures, the study found that excess death rates, the number of deaths above pre-pandemic levels for registered Republicans were significantly higher than for registered Democrats after the introduction of COVID-19 vaccines. Now, the study tracked hundreds of thousands of people, and we'll get to the specifics here in a moment, but I just want anyone who may have spread misinformation or disinformation about the COVID-19 vaccines to understand that they indeed played a role in the deaths of these human beings. I disagree with Republicans. I criticize Republicans. I poke fun at Republicans, but I never want them to die. I want them to change their minds and they don't have the capacity to change their minds on any issue if they are no longer with us. So the people who pushed vaccine hesitancy, the folks like Joe Rogan, Jimmy Dore, you can't quantify the damage that they did. But deep down, they've got to know that they did tremendous damage and they assisted this anti-vax movement in convincing Republicans to not do something that could have saved their lives. Now, let's get to the numbers here. The study tracked 577,659 people who died in Ohio and Florida at age 25 or older between January of 2018 and December of 2021. It then linked those people to their 2017 Ohio and Florida voting records. Between March of 2020 and March of 2021, excess death rates for Republicans in Ohio and Florida were 1.6 percentage points higher than for Democrats. But from April of 2021 to December of 2021, 
after vaccines became widely available, the gap widened to 10.6 percentage points. The study found that the largest gaps in excess death rates between Republicans and Democrats came in Ohio and Florida counties with low vaccination rates. By using county-level vaccination rates in Ohio and Florida, we find evidence that vaccination contributes to explaining differences in excess deaths by political party affiliation even after controlling for location and age differences, the study said. So let's repeat that number. 10.6 percentage points. There was nearly an 11 point difference in excess deaths in 2021 between Democrats and Republicans. And I think this is deeply sad. I think this is deeply, deeply sad because many of the people who participated in this misinformation, I think that a lot of them didn't know what they were doing. I think that they were genuine, but it's the grifters who I place blame on disproportionately who pushed vaccine hesitancy. And if you have the biggest platform, the bigger the platform, the higher level of culpability that you share. Individuals like Tucker Carlson and Joe Rogan are among the biggest names who I think are responsible for these people. Now, they aren't going to look at this data and have a sudden change of heart or feel guilt. But I think it's really important that we know just how devastating this anti-vaccine movement was. And for all of the people in 2021 who called me a big pharma shill for pushing the vaccines, well, this is why. Because I suspected that this was indeed the case. I have family members who have berated other family members, my mom in particular, because she was vaccinated saying that she was a demon or possessed by the devil to do something like that, saying that she was going to be sick because of the vaccines. So I saw it firsthand. I saw how potent the propaganda was, and I tried to use my platform to do my part. But, you know, people aren't going to listen to me. We needed the people who were in these positions of influence with the anti-vax movement to come out and admit that they were wrong. That is what would have been powerful. But we didn't see that. Now, conversely, we know that the vaccines have saved lots and lots of lives. Estimates show that in the United States alone, it's a lot. COVID vaccines prevented more than 700,000 hospitalizations and 300,000 deaths for senior citizens in 2021. Now, globally, 19.8 million lives were saved across 185 countries in the first year when vaccines were available. So there would be so much more deaths had it not been for the COVID-19 vaccines. But there were people who refused to take it, and now they're no longer here. And I find this really, really sad. But some people you just can't get through, through to them you know just the other day on twitter the uh singer mia she uh made some tweet on twitter that was incredibly stupid saying that oh well if alex jones can be uh charged because he lied can all of the celebrities who pushed vaccines like i'm paraphrasing but something along those lines and for whatever reason the anti-vax movement feels emboldened today i still I'm seeing uh, tweets directed at me saying, oh, well, are you going to apologize for pushing the vaccines? You've been really quiet lately. Because there's not really anything left that we can say. At this point in time, the people who haven't been vaccinated, they have at least seen some data, right? We're adults here. If you choose to not get vaccinated, that's on you. So we all tried. <laughs> That's the point. Even if I felt like I maybe influenced zero people in 2021, I at least tried. And that's more than I can say for people 
like Joe Rogan and Tucker Carlson, who absolutely share a lot of the blame here in this anti-vax movement, in these excess deaths. People who listen to Joe Rogan, who were instructed to not get the vaccines because alternative medicine, like, you know, um, ivermectin, not that that's an alternative medicine, but an alternative treatment, they claimed, is uh, better. It's just, he should never be able to live with himself. He should be up every single night feeling guilt for all of these deaths. How many of his own listeners did he kill? You just don't know. Now, you know, I hate that this vaccine argument has devolved into a debate about like, oh, well, if you push the vaccines, you're pro big pharma. No, I think that we should nationalize the companies that produced these vaccines. Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna. Um, I don't know if they're American companies. Is I think BioNTech is a German company, but whatever is an American company, I think that we should nationalize them. I have a lot of critiques. You've all heard them about our for-profit healthcare industry. And that extends to pharmaceutical companies that rip off Americans, especially after we give them our tax dollars to fund research that leads to the development of new medications. So I have issues. I have criticisms. But there's no criticism against modern medicine. You can't not participate in modern medicine. It doesn't make you a big pharma shill if you take a Tylenol if you have a headache. It doesn't make you a big pharma shill if you pop a Tums or two if you have heartburn. These are things that are available to us that have drastically improved our lives, and vaccines are among those things that have improved our lives. And to see a section of the population reject them just flat out because it's a partisan issue, that is very, very sad. It, it's very devastating to me. And it goes beyond, you know, their apprehension about vaccines. This vax movement is also linked to the Trump movement, right? Not, not exclusively, right? It's not mutually exclusive, but a lot of them are also Trump supporters who believe that the election was stolen. You know, conspiratorial thinking tends to expand to other areas of society, and a lot of them think that the election was stolen. A lot of them are kind of living in their own alternate reality. And so I, I don't know how to get through to these people, and this is kind of an open question that I've had for years now on this program, but I genuinely don't know but sometimes misinformation doesn't just harm democracy, it harms individuals in a profound way. We're talking 11% of people dying due to conspiracy theories and misinformation, and I for one find that sad. Just because, you know, I disagree with them politically doesn't mean that I think that the sentence should be death. No, I want them to live. I want them to get the vaccines so they can live their lives, but that's not where we're at. And this, this study is uh, sad, although honestly, not that surprising. I'm just a little bit startled by how big the number is, how big the deviation, you know, is. I, I wouldn't have not expect. I wouldn't have, I should say, expected it to be 11%, maybe like 5%, but 11% almost. That's huge. And if this doesn't cause a little bit of introspection among the biggest and loudest anti-vax propagandists, which it won't, you know, it goes to show you that these people care about nothing but views and clicks, and I just find that gross, but nothing left to say about this, so I'll leave that there. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites.
invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.